Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 8. Ezra chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoahanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Let's pray. Our Father, let us glory in your wonderful word today. Let us hear the grace and the love that you give us, especially when you're warning us against things that would take us into calamity. Teach us to love Your Word. Teach us to love You more. Let Your Holy Spirit take the words of Your Scripture and apply them to our hearts, implanting the Word within us. Take the words of this servant and fit them for your purposes. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We resume today in our study of Ezra, and I want to thank you, Aaron, uh, and I hope everybody does give him a huge thanks. He has filled the pulpit admirably these last few weeks. Thank you so much. We're now in the home stretch of Ezra, well into the final chapter. You'll recall where we are. Ezra has found out the exiles who had returned to the land prior to his group have been intermarrying with the idolaters of the land. This great sin has reached even to the leaders and the priests of the people. And when he found out, he fell to his face in prayer for the people, weeping and confessing the sin of the people of God. I was reminded of that as we read our memory verse for this month. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. That is exactly what Ezra was doing here. What Joel had called God's people to so long ago. And while he was praying... A man named Shechaniah stepped out and helped Ezra understand the truth of the situation. The marriages with the idolaters were not legitimate marriages at all, since God could never have put them together in the first place. They could not say what God has joined together, because God had truly never joined them together. The best that could be said was that these couples were sharing a roof, but no more. There was no marriage here since the marriage to the idolaters of the land was forbidden by the law of God. And so the solution was straightforward. 
but not simple. It was straightforward, but not painless. Dissolve these illegitimate marriages and send the women who remained idolaters out of the homes of the faithful. But do so providing them with a certificate of divorce so that they would be taken back in to their father's houses. Ezra understood immediately the godly wisdom of the plan. He stood and asked all there with him to vow to do this very thing. Because obedience to God is more important than your feelings. Obedience to God is more important than your plans. Obedience to God is more important than even what you most desire in this world. And so that brings us to today. And we see in verse 6 that he left the front of the temple and he went into a private room, probably a priest of the temple, a fellow whose name was Jehohanan. And I know I'm butchering the, the pronunciation. That's a lot of consonants. Now, when we were looking at chapter 9 and the prayer of Ezra, I mentioned that several commentators thought that Ezra was just being dramatic. They even hypothesized that Ezra and Shechaniah had this whole drama worked out. And I told you at that time that I think that that's hogwash. And the greatest evidence of the failure of that theory is in verse 6 today. Because after he had left the view of the people in the temple, when he was in the private chambers of Jehohanan, he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. There was no audience here. There was nobody to convince. He wasn't doing anything in this private room that anyone else could see. It was just him and God. And Ezra continued fasting and prayer. We see a lot of people doing a lot of things when people are looking. And we should always take those things with a grain of salt. Because it's what people do in private when no one is looking that reveals who they really are. You are not even the person you show to the public. Not completely. Even if that's who you would most like to be. You are the person that you are when it is only God and you. When you feel like you're alone and no one is looking. When you feel like you're alone and no one will find out. It is that person who will stand one day before God and give an account of every careless word they have spoken, every hidden thing that they have done. Matthew 12, 34-36 tells us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. In a similar way, Ezra didn't simply slap his hands together and say, well, that was a good start, and then go into Johanan's 
room and have a big meal. He kept praying, even in private. He kept fasting, even in private. He kept mourning, even in private. This wasn't an act. This wasn't some grand theater to convince people to follow the law of God. There's no eloquence to this. There is no eloquence to going into a private room and taking your prayers to God. We don't have to worry about putting the right words together when we speak from our hearts. Because this was the broken heart of a man of God mourning for the sin of people he loved. Sin against the God he loved. He was mourning like Jacob mourned when he was told that Joseph had been killed by wild animals in Genesis 37. He was mourning like David over Absalom, his sinning son. After he died. 2 Samuel 18.33, beginning there and following, says, Thus David said as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son, When it was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. Ezra was truly the man in the middle. He was the one standing in the gap between the sinful people and God who was the one offended. In Ezekiel, God tells the judgment of Judah when there was no one to stand in the gap. In Ezekiel 22.30, He says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. For Ezra, he recognized that no one else was pleading with God and man for the sake of the people. He pleaded with God for His mercy and he prayed and fasting that God would fasted that God would open the eyes and the hearts of the people to recognize their own sin and repent of it. Because the people were guilty. God was innocent in this entire event. It was the people who had sinned. It was the people who had betrayed God. Ezra was mourning over the faithlessness, the betrayal of the exiles toward God. They had fallen in love with the passing pleasures of sin rather than the eternal righteousness of God. They had left the example of even Moses who is described in Hebrews in his faith. In that great chapter 11 beginning in verse 24, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater than the rich treasures of all of Egypt, for he was looking to that reward. That word faithlessness that Ezra was mourning over 
In Ezra 10.6 is the word for betrayal. It's the word for treachery. It is the same word used in Numbers 5.27 to describe a woman who had committed adultery. Instead of loving God and being faithful to Him, they had sought other people, idolaters, and their passing pleasures. Ezra knew all this. And he persisted in doing the things he knew to do. Fasting and prayer. And that's what I'd like to take the remainder of our time looking at today. Because even when we do all the right things, we're often tempted to stop doing them. Particularly if we're doing them for the wrong reasons. Ezra continued fasting and praying because of the concern in his heart for the glory of God and the obedience of his people. We're not given the words of this private prayer, but I'd suggest that the content would not have been much different than the cries of his heart in the ninth chapter of this very same book. Because chapter 9 is Ezra's first person account of this very prayer. The chronicle of exactly what he was thinking about and what he was praying for. And after the message of Shechaniah in the first few verses of chapter 10, nothing has really changed with regard to the people's sin. Only an agreement to bring everyone, guilty or not, together to deal with that sin. And so there's no reason to think his private prayer would have been materially different than his public prayer because nothing in the situation had changed. But the only difference here is that he persists in that prayer even when no one sees him. And speaking of things that were to come for the disciples... Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. He was telling them of the trials, the tribulations, the opposition, the difficulties they would have because they carried the name of Jesus Christ on them. And that word endures is powerful. It means to stay, to remain, to stand through the pressure. It's the same word that is translated remain steadfast that the half-brother of Jesus, James, uses in his letter to the church in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who endures under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. The message in these passages is this. Persist. Stay with Jesus Christ. Keep pressing on to righteousness in spite, even, regardless of the opposition. Because all hell fears a persistent believer a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who will not be shaken from His allegiance to Christ by circumstance. All hell 
fears a follower who will not quit pushing forward before the battle is finished. It is those followers against whom the gates of hell will not prevail. But because the devil fears a persistent believer, he will bring to bear great temptations to keep us from being faithful in our efforts. Think on your, back on your life when you've, begun, when you've begun efforts toward good things. For example, how many believers in January vow to read the Bible each day and then give out sometime before February strikes? Or what about when faced with the grave consequences for sin, repent for a little while, but then return to that very sin? Or when one part of our lives is out of line with the will of God, we promise to bring it back in line, only to lose steam after a little while. Because we find after all our best efforts, as Jesus told His disciples on the night that He was betrayed, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He didn't say that to excuse our failure. I've heard it so many times. People use it, well, I'm, that's what I want to do, but my flesh is so weak. Jesus didn't even say it then. He was giving them a warning. Live up to your spirit. Don't live down to your flesh. You are not people. If you are in Christ, you are not people of the flesh. You are people of God. You are people of the Spirit. And the remedy that Jesus prescribes in that very verse for the battle between flesh and spirit is to keep watching and keep praying that you may not enter temptation. That's what He said before. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What He's saying is persist in the things that you know God has given you to bring you into into repentance, into righteousness. Keep watching. Keep praying that you may not enter temptation for the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Keep doing the things you should do. Keep doing the things that build your spirit and that war against your flesh. If Ezra were like many of us today, He would have gone into that chamber and he had a meal. And he might not have even done it because he was putting on a show. He could have been entirely sincere on his face in the temple. He could have been sincere there. But many of us, how many of us would give up our fasting, give up our urgent and consuming prayer at the moment there is simply a plan to address the problem? Or the minute it disappears from the headlines or until something else comes along to distract us? Is it possible that God has not poured out revival on His church here in the United States because we, His people, haven't been persistent in our prayers? We think of it occasionally. We mention it when it comes to our mind. But we haven't agonized. We haven't persisted. For some things we may fast, we may pray urgently, 
but we allow ourselves to be convinced that since we can't continue that forever, we should quit before we see God's work happening. That we should quit when there's a plan in place, even a plan that has not even yet begun. It reminds me of an incident at the end of Elisha's life in 2 Kings 13, beginning in verse 14 and following. We're told that when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Basically what he's saying is, what are we going to do without Elisha? And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. And he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek, until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And the king took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. We must be careful when we think that the immediate crisis, that the immediate need is over, particularly if we only have the beginnings of the answer. Persist in prayer. Persist in fasting. Persist in doing what you should be doing. We read it this morning at Galatians 6. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. And that word for give up there could also be translated give out. It's the picture of letting your inward weariness stop your outward progress. Like someone running who decides they are weary before their legs give out on them, and so they stop. Along with believing that the need is over, a second reason we might not persist in doing right is because we simply lose hope. We lose hope that we will ever see an answer to the prayer. We stop believing that God will even answer us. For many, this can come This can be someone for whom you have prayed to see the light of the gospel and to come to Jesus Christ and to follow Him. How many years, how many decades, how many tears are enough? Now realize God is sovereign over who He chooses. But Christian, hear me when I say this. Don't ever let that be your excuse to stop praying. Don't ever let that be your excuse to stop delivering the gospel. We who know the sovereignty of God in His selection have hope more than anyone else that our prayers may be answered 
and that He will grant salvation to the most hardened heart in His time. Jesus commends those who pray in faith even when there is no answer that comes immediately. We read it in Luke chapter 18, beginning the very first verse. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, not give out, not give up. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I fear neither God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to His elect? who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith, that kind of faith, on the earth? Will you persist in prayer? Will you storm the gates of heaven? Storm the throne of grace. Because Christian, if you're praying for something that glorifies God, that mortifies sin, or delivers God's grace, keep on praying. If you're simply praying for something that makes you happy, you can leave that behind. But if you're truly seeking His will, His glory, and His gospel... Don't let anything stop you from storming the throne of heaven in your prayers. It is not faith if you simply give up. That's called fatalism, not faith. Believer, we are called to faith. And faith keeps asking until our faithful prayers are answered. Don't lose hope. Grow faith. A third reason we might stop doing good is that we think we don't need to try anymore. Perhaps that we are good enough. That we have arrived. That we have a good reputation. That many, because many will cease in prayer against difficult sins when we think they're not a problem anymore. We think we've outgrown them. Or that we're no longer tempted in the way that we were in the past. People who are addicted sometimes think they are cured. We are addicted to sin. And this side of heaven, we are not finally cured. We would be fighting against the flesh until the day we die. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13 says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able 
to endure it. There's that word endure again. That you'll be able to go through it. Now when it says He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, it means your ability in Him. He is not going to let you be tempted in anything that He cannot handle through you. We are never immune to sin. Even those we have put away long in the past. The temptation will always be there. And we must fight against that temptation every single day. The promise of these verses is that God will provide the way of escape. It's not a. It's the way of escape. The way to successfully get away from the temptation. But if we love anything in this world more than God, we will certainly find ourselves hard-pressed to find that escape because that escape is always going to be in Him. You will never in your life be good enough to handle sin on your own. The enemy may give you a time of respite, may give you a time of rest, but only so he can crush you with greater force when you do fall. Never trust what people think of you. You're never as strong as you appear. You're never intended to walk alone in this life. You will never be self-sufficient. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. The last reason I'll mention today that we do not persist in doing good, doing right, is because we are doing them for the wrong person. Many is the preacher who will fight against some sin in public only to fall to them in private. Many are the believers who will hide their sin from others. Many who will try to contain the results of their sin while never striking at its cause or at its root. And truly, even when we do good things for ourselves, we tend to lose heart for them as well. Has, is there anybody in who has ever exercised equipment that has ended up holding more clothes than your closet? Has anyone ever tried to go on a diet because it would be good for them? Has there anyone ever failed at keeping a quiet time that they decided was going to be at 5 o'clock in the morning. The opinion of people, and indeed even our own good outcomes, are not good enough at causing us to persist in doing good. And there's a very good reason for this. Doing good is not the right goal. Prayer is useless when it is done simply to say, I prayed. Fasting is spiritually 
useless if it is simply a diet plan. Reading the Bible accomplishes very little when we are simply trying to get our required chapters in every day. Does that mean that these are bad activities? No. It means we cannot realize and access their power if we're doing them for the wrong reason, the wrong person. Pharisees obeyed the law. They obeyed God's good law, but they did it for the law's sake. They wanted to be able to say that they were innocent with regard to God's law. They wanted to be seen as keepers of God's law to the smallest degree. But in Christ, our relationship with the law changed entirely. Our relationship with the law changed fundamentally. At its very foundation, our relationship with the law changed. For those who are not in Christ, they are right to fear God. They are right to fear His law. They are right to fear His judgment because one day they will stand in front of Him and they have no hope to declare in themselves any worthiness before a holy God. But child of God, if you are a child of God through Jesus Christ, the law is not a source of terror for you. The judgment of God is not a terrible day for you. It is a glorious one. And one to be greatly anticipated. Because on that day, it will be finally declared that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has covered you completely. And all your sin was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. What we know here in part will be seen in that day fully. The law for the Christian no longer drives you through fear of threats, but draws you into loving obedience to God. As believers, we read the law, we love the law, not because we fear its penalties, but because we love its author. Obedience to the law is not wrapped in the fear of penalty of the law. It is wrapped in the love for Jesus that He has placed inside us, that He has placed in our hearts. We don't simply do not do the bad things because the law says so. We don't do the bad things because it breaks the heart of God. And we love Him. John 14, 15 says, If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. 1 John 2, 3, By this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. 1 John 2, 5 and 6, Whoever keeps His word in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. It's not saying that you're going to lose your salvation if you sin. What it's saying is that you are going to break the heart of your heavenly Father who has given you everything you need to be righteous in Him. If your love for Him is greater than the love of the world, then your heart will break at that thought. So many Christians go around thinking, 
all about all the about all that they are missing by obeying God's law. I'm not getting this opportunity to sin. I'm not able to understand what the world has to offer. Even when we know that there's nothing good that He forbids. There's nothing that He forbids that is good for us to have. The fruit on the tree in the garden looked good. It would be delicious and would make them wise. And so they ate. But in the end, it was the end of their life of innocence. And it was the end of their unbroken fellowship with God Himself. For the sake of the taste... They gave up their lives. They wanted to understand the experiences. They wanted to understand what evil was. When God said, know me. And that will be enough. Why do we allow ourselves to believe that we are missing something in this world? What greater truth is there than that we have promises from God both here and hereafter that He will supply everything that we need? If He is all we want, He supplies all our wants as well. Christian, Encourage your heart. Persist in doing good. Persist in rejecting sin by knowing that your heavenly Father has from eternity past foreseen and given you everything you need to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Keep doing the good things even when no one is looking. Let's pray. Our Father, how many times have we absolutely broken Your heart? Choosing the passing pleasure of sin, the bite of the fruit, that satisfied us only for a moment and yet destroyed things that you had built up in us. How many times have we looked at the things of this world and chosen them over you? And how many times Have we forgotten that it is You who gives us everything that we need? Chalking, meeting our needs up to our own industry. Pulling us up by our own bootstraps or trusting in our own bank account.
God, you are all we need. You are our consuming love. Help us to love you more. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But God, never let us happily give in to the flesh. Build up our spirit through watching and praying. Being careful to do the things that you have told us are the best for us. You didn't give us the law to be a cosmic killjoy. You gave us the law because it shows us the right things for us to do. Because you are pleased when we are in right relationship with you. You are pleased when we are fellowshipping with you. What pleases you is absolutely the best thing for us. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous Lamb of God, your holy offering that we pray. Amen.